This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the end of September 2018. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and an assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. It's great to be seen, David. How have you been? David, pretty well, pretty well. It's been busy. We've, I guess, since the last recording, we we started the new academic year at, at CTU. It's been very good. I've been on the road a bit now that the academic year is underway, doing some speaking commitments, some lecturing. And we're now starting the third week of class as we're recording this. So I'm um, excited about that. I'm teaching two really great courses this semester. One is a, a kind of a staple called Fundamental Theology and, and Methods, which is a real core course in systematics for particularly the Master of Divinity students, the MDiv students. And then I'm teaching an upper level elective in the de- spirituality department called Thomas Merton for today on violence, racism, and justice. And that is just... Um, it's just th- thrilling. I love it. Well, Merton is a specialty for you. For those who are listeners who may not know this, you're one of, you're not exactly Merton's biographer, but you're working with his collected letters or is that a project? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, one of these long-term projects. You know, it's, I've been working on it for a number of years already. So I've done, you know, a lot of work on, on Merton's theology and the influences of his thought and writing over the years. And concurrently, I've been working on this project, editing the correspondence between him and Naomi Burton Stone, who was at first his literary agent and then later in the career an editor and a lifelong friend. He himself describes her in, in their correspondence in the early years as uh, as kind of a big sister, somebody who kind of keeps him on track. And then later on has more of even a kind of a motherly sense that she plays a significant role. And so if we think about the people who are influential in Merton's life, she's one of a handful of people who was a close, uh, had a close relationship at, at first, very professional. And then again, a friendship in addition to the professional relationship from the time before Merton was Merton before the seven story mountain, when he was a, still an aspiring writer, as it were, through the time of his death. And, and she was actually one of the founding trustees of the Merton uh, Literary Trust and, and actually helped edit and publish some of his posthumous works in the late 60s and early 70s. So kind of a giant in Merton's world. And so that's a long-term project. Yeah. And so it, this this editing of the letters, is, is that through the Literary Trust as well? Or is that a 
Yes. Yeah, it is. So there have been five volumes that were published in the 80s and early 90s of Merton's kind of a select selection of his letters to various folks. But what has happened in the last 20 or 25 years is that, you know, scholars have uh, really taken a deep dive into the full correspondence, the full, full conversation. So not just selections. I mean, it is edited. You know, a lot of the stuff, including the stuff that I'm working on, is some of it is a little mundane and people aren't going to be particularly interested in it who are outside of the kind of Merton Guild of, of Merton scholars. But uh, what you see is, you know contracts formed between the Merton Legacy Trust, which controls everything of Merton's intellectual property, what gets published, who has rights, who has access to it. So they sign off on selecting an editor to do the work of of that particular correspondence. And then, you know, the attorneys for the Merton uh, Literary Trust actually engage with the other if there is a trust or if there is a literary state of the other person or whoever the executor is, if they're no longer living to get permissions for the other, the publication, the editing and publication of the other side of the conversation. So I've been very fortunate that, that yeah, there's a joint contract between the Merton literary trust and the estate of Naomi Burton stone. Um, so it's an, it's an exciting project. It's, it's long in the making. A lot of my colleagues in the Merton world tease me that they like, they're like, oh, I've just stopped asking how it's going, you know, <laughs> when's it going to come out? Because it's, it's a, you know, think about it. His literary editor, uh, literary agent, and then editor and friends. So you have this kind of threefold reason for correspondence in an age when email didn't exist and phone calls. If you are a, a monk in, in, you know, the 1940s, 50s, 60s, you don't have access to this. So a lot of the business is happening by letter or by telegram. And so we're talking about, um, hundreds of letters pushing a thousand letters and many, many thousands of pages. So it's, it's, it's a lot. Is this going to end up being a multi-volume work or will it be one volume? Yeah. I had a conversation with a publisher about that. You know, this particular publisher had suggested some creative ideas. I, I don't know. I mean, the, the hard work of editing a trove this big is that you do have to go through and transcribe everything. And so before you can start doing the work of deciding what's going to be included, ultimately in a volume. I don't know. I, I don't really know. We'll see. I, I've been very deliberate about not... Um, there have been several publishers over the years who know about this project, who have expressed interest in in doing it. And uh, I have not locked in anyone just yet. I haven't signed any contracts yet because I'm not entirely sure. I want to be further along with a clearer sense of what I think would make the best volume. But there are a lot of interesting creative proposals out there. All right, enough about me. What are you up to? So I was in New York last week with my friends at Commonweal. And as we are recording this, there is a draft of a full episode for the Commonweal podcast. And they are being very ambitious in this early stage. I think that before the end of September, and certainly before the middle of October, there's going to be three episodes released to just kind of give a good push. And then I think we're going to move to a monthly release schedule after that. But I love hanging out with those folks. And I spent the weekend uh, really kind of editing and, and moving all this forward. And I'm really pleased with how it sounds so far. Uh, it's in the hands of the Commonwealth staff right now as, I, as we're recording this. And I'm going to have a conversation by phone with them later today to get some feedback on some things that may need to be tightened up. And and then I think it'll be released pretty soon. And then I'm I'm just happy to share these conversations with the rest of the world because this has been 
a project of mine with Tom Baker, the publisher, and some other folks at Commonweal. We've been talking about this for four years, so I'm really happy to be at this point. That's really very exciting. How frequent is it going to come out? I think it's going to be a monthly release once it gets rolling because, you know, they're, they're producing a, a, a magazine and they've got lives. It's weekly, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so they're, they're putting stuff out a lot. One of the things that I did with them over the past couple of years was really talking through their structure and their institutional rhythms to sort of see how this could fit and not be onerous. And I think we've gotten to the point where now they can be generating podcast content along the way as they're working on this other editorial content for the print magazine. I think we figured out some ways to do that. So it's not going to be doubling duty, but instead some things will naturally be both. And then they'll have the bandwidth to do some extra things on top of that that are going to be kind of interesting. So I'm excited to see where they take it because they've really owned it as a as a an institutional culture. And it's been fun to see what their ideas have given to me in terms of things to work with. That's neat. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of the content too, is it interview? Is it what what is it? What's the flavor of it? I love that you asked that question. One of the things that we're trying to capture in this podcast for Commonweal is both the intellectual side, the interviews, but also a little bit of the the flavor of what it's like to be there in their offices. And so some oh, that's of that's interesting. Some of the things that we've included have been like, for example, three of them were sitting around one day having a conversation about uh, an exhibit of Giacometti's sculptures that was at the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim. I, I went to that exhibit. Yeah. And, and then they decided to turn on the tape recorder. And so we have, you know, an informed discussion with differing points of view about their experiences of this Giacometti exhibit. And for me, that's part of what is so exciting about this podcast is it's going to give a kind of behind the scenes flavor of the intense, informed nerdiness of this group of people. Well, I'm very interested, particularly in that, because I'm a big fan of Giacometti. Yeah. And uh, and I love that exhibit was really extraordinary. Well, one of their editors, Griffin Olniak, uh, really takes an interesting take on it and ends up giving a very spiritual twist to his experience of the exhibit. I just had a lot of fun. I learned a ton by editing that particular segment for the episode. And that's true for every one of those segments. So there's a really good segment on kind of lefty politics in the Catholic Church. And there's really uh, two good takes by Kathy Cummings and Massimo Fagioli on the recent sex abuse crisis. So, I mean, there's going to be a, a rich diversity of politics and art and culture and reflection in this. It almost sounds like they're modeling it after the old New Yorker radio hour, New Yorker podcast, where it's it's a, it's a kind of a, a smattering of different things, some formal, some informal, some interview, some reflection. I think that's spot on. Uh, I think that that's, if that is a goal to be trying to hit, that's a good goal to aspire to. Yeah. And, and on top of that, in addition to doing that work, I'm continuing to write. And like you, I'm teaching a couple of classes this semester at Loyola. I'm teaching an Old Testament class and I'm, I'm teaching a class on spirituality. And I'm hoping later in the fall to get a chance to go out to Traverse City and visit with my old friend, Walter Brueggemann. So that's what I'm working on. Awesome. Yeah. So, Dan, you know, last week we changed the format up a little bit and we did something that was a little bit more personal. And I'm just wondering kind of in the wake of that, how you're feeling, because I, I, I'm aware that you talked to me about some things that you hadn't been ready to talk about publicly prior to that conversation. First of all, thank you for trusting me with that, but also just wondering kind of how you're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing OK. You know, my um, my thoughts and, and my prayers still are I don't want to say dominated, but but 
have included a significant portion of reflection on the experiences of the victims and survivors of abuse and and the structural issues that still are persistently problematic in, in the church and what it means to be a minister, a public minister in the church as as we're going through this. And what does it mean to listen? What does it mean to accompany my my sisters and brothers? What does it mean for me and my brother friars in particular to work through this ourselves? Because we are not exempt from the same sorts of feelings as we discussed in the last episode that that you as as a lay Catholic, you know, a husband and a father and and so many others experience. I mean, we're we're in a similar boat. So so that that work continues. And I have to say I'm very grateful for the friends and, and family that I have. I'm grateful for the opportunity we have to talk about this, to be able to hear your experience, to share some of mine. And grateful for my religious community, you know, a very good community of, of Franciscan brothers who we've taken a lot of time to, to process this together and, and to do things, to talk about ways of doing something constructive, you know, focusing some of our, our prayer and penance uh, around this issue in solidarity with victims and survivors, but also, yeah, trying to think constructively, creatively, faithfully about, you know, what is it like to be a minister in the church? How ought we best serve our sisters and brothers in in the wake of this uh, reality? Well, my family, we've been working through this as well. And I, I've shared that my wife and I spent a lot of time talking about this. For the first time this past weekend, that's the first time that we've been back to mass since this all this news broke. And it was hard for both of us. And we, we spent some time after mass and after the homily processing. Now, the homily was pretty masterful. It was uh, Father Robin Ryan. Oh, he's, he's so good. Yeah, he and he did he did a really good job. You know, it had been several weeks, and so I was not sure whether there would be any mention of the crisis. And at first, there wasn't. He was speaking very personally, and he was telling some anecdotes, and he was weaving together the readings from the morning. And then at about the halfway point, he brought it in, and it was. I, I described it to my wife. I said it was deft the way that he brought it in. It, it had good fingertip feeling with how he handled it. And in the course of that homily, he even said, I guess if you hear a priest talking about this from the pulpit, it must sound like it rings pretty hollow right now. And so he owned that aspect of it too. But this this brought us back as we were debriefing afterwards to the same thing that I said in the last episode. And that is, you know, having a good homilist in a good parish is not the same as hearing the entire church say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And I think that there's, there's yet still that to come. And, yeah. and that's going to, I'm not sure, you know, I, my wife is struggling with this right now and I'm struggling with this right now. And both my children, it was catechist, it was catechist Sunday this past Sunday. And, you know, both my kids went to Sunday school and, you know, and they are excited and they're exploring and discovering the church. And my wife and I are looking at one another going, boy, kids, <laughs> glad, glad that you're still finding something exciting in it. But I don't want to paint it so dour, but I, but it is, it has been a difficult several weeks. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're, we're working through it. Well, and I should say too, you, you mentioned this, I think last week that, or the last episode that, you know, we're very fortunate here in Hyde Park in the south side of Chicago to be in a neighborhood that is surrounded by, you know, uh, the Catholic parish in this neighborhood is both, you know, the ministers of which, at least some of them, the part-time ministers, those who help out like Robin Ryan, 
are religious clergy who happen to be professional theologians yeah. teaching at a graduate school and that yeah. a lot of the congregation, yourself included, are people, you know, who have advanced degrees in theology or students who are studying for ministry. It's a deeply, you know, intellectually robust community here, yeah. but it's also a very theologically and ministerially grounded community. And we live you know, and I'm grateful for that, you know, because it's, it's a privilege. It's a real honor. It's a, it's a great treat. Um, but sadly, there are a lot of parishes. Most parishes don't have that experience. And just a shout out to my colleague, Robin, who's a, who's a fellow systematics specialist, a systematic theologian at CTU. You know, he's especially, you know, adept at this because a lot of his research over the years has dealt with God and suffering. So, you know, people can check out his books, you know, on, online if they're interested to, to get some of Robin's wisdom and insight, you know, uh, remotely, if you can't, you know, have the opportunity to hear him preach. And so today we're going to be shifting after the break to uh, listen to a conversation that Dan and I recorded with Heidi Schlumpf, who is the national correspondent for National Catholic Reporter. So we'll bring you that in just a moment when our program returns. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. This season, as we mentioned in the last episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're taking an overall theme for the season, and we're looking at issues of frustration and friction and pinch points in the church, places where people's faith is wavering or where they're coming up with doubt, given recent events. And we're trying to talk about this from a variety of perspectives. And today we have a guest who's going to be speaking to us about that. And uh, Dan, go ahead and tell us who that is. Well, first, let me just pick up what you were saying, David, that as our listeners know, uh, this season, we're looking at these themes. Last week, we took a look at recent revelations of clergy sex abuse, harassment and cover up. Um, and this week, we're taking a look at something that may not be as recent, but is something as and even more persistent, we might say, and continuous. And that is the experience of women in the church, how women are treated, viewed, listened to, or ignored, as it may be. Joining us for this conversation, we have Heidi Schlumpf, the national correspondent for National Catholic Reporter. Heidi, it's great to have you back. I think you're now our official first returning guest, so friend of the pod, as they say. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to come down here again. We invited you to be a part of this conversation um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is your vast experience as a journalist in Catholic media and, and more broadly as a former columnist um, for NCR and now as the national correspondent. You've had personal experiences of you know, what it's like to be a woman in the church, but you also have, more importantly, I think, uh, access to and, and have heard the experience of so, of so many other women. So there's a lot that we, we can talk about, and we will in, in this episode. I have a lot of my own kind of thoughts about this as well as, as an ally. I hope to be uh, an ally, uh, a feminist ally, and I know David has thoughts as well. But maybe I can just begin by asking you your initial thoughts um, as you think about uh, in our current Current time, what it's like to be a woman in the church. Why do women stay? <laughs> That's a great question. And I, I, I can't 
some days I can't answer that. Women don't always stay, first of all. And even for me personally, it hasn't always been possible for me to consider myself staying, whatever that means, in the church. So, uh, you know, regular mass attendance. Um, but why do women stay? I think most women who stay in the church stay for the reasons that other people stay. It's feeding them spiritually. It's helping them connect with God. It's providing a community to them to live out and be Christian disciples. So to the extent that the church can do that, it's why women would stay in the church. But many women also experience a lot of pain and frustration and, you know, out and out sexism and discrimination in the church. Uh, we certainly experience it in society too. So, you know, I think it's always a challenge when uh, sometimes the church can be that oasis from the experience of patriarchy or sexism that you're experiencing in the broader culture. It's a place where you find comfort or camaraderie or spiritual uh, sustenance. But sometimes in the church, what you find is a more extreme or pronounced experience of sexism or patriarchy. And then that can be even more painful because it's connected to your spirituality. Can I bounce something off of you and see if, if it resonates? So I, I come from an abusive home and, you know, I have history with my mother who's now deceased. Nevertheless, I love my mother. And I wish that I was still in a relationship with my mother. And so there's this complexity of I've been hurt by this relationship. Nevertheless, this relationship also nourishes me. It's part of where I came from. It helps to identify who I am. And if I'm hearing what you're saying in your answer, the experience of women in the church is something like that. Why, why do some stay? Because they found, they found some nourishment there, despite the fact that there's also tremendous pain and there's relationship. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, so I think that's true. And, I, and again, I, I'm not speaking for all women because some women have some ex, don't experience that in the church. And some women experience pain and walk away and say, this would be, you know, codependent or somehow abusive for me to stay in an institution that is where I feel like I'm being treated as less than I should be. Yes. But for many people, I think the comparison to a familial relationship is, is a good one. Their Catholicism seems a, so much a part of themselves that it's not something you can, you know, really walk away from, even if you're not practicing. And you know, one thing that I've covered throughout the years as a reporter, not just at NCR, but even when I was at U.S. Catholic and when I was working for the diocesan newspaper here in Chicago, was that many Catholic women have created alternative communities sort of within the church or on the margins of the church where they're able to still claim Catholicism. Maybe they still participate in a parish or a mass. Maybe they don't but where they can experience the Catholic tradition in a way that they feel is healthier for them or in a, in a better way for women. You know, one of the things I think about as, you know, an ordained Franciscan friar as, as a, a priest in the Catholic church is that when I'm presiding at liturgy, it's so starkly aware to me, let's say I'm in a parish that I'm up in the sanctuary and I'm looking out and the vast majority, you know, just by quick glance at almost every turn, unless it's, you know, I'm addressing uh, a group of other male religious or, or diocesan clergy, it's beyond the 51% population majority of women. Most of the active participants, at least in, in the American church, tends to be female. And then furthermore, when you look around at the parish staffs and the, vol the volunteers, those who give of themselves and, and sacrifice salaries, sacrifice time, energy, treasure, and so forth. 
tend to be women. And, and, you know, one of the things that it's just something that always strikes me that the representation of leadership does not reflect, you know, the, what's, what, what the assembly, what the body of Christ looks like. And I don't know if you have thoughts about that or if you have a sense of, you know, how other women that you've, you know, have talked to or have heard over the years, is this something they recognize too? Well, I can say that for me, I certainly do. You know, I grew up in a very progressive parish and I felt very well formed in the Catholic faith. And I have a very positive memories of growing up Catholic. And maybe that's partially what keeps me in the church, even despite some struggles. But I do remember having a sense throughout my young life, like that something was sort of wrong, that um, women weren't represented, at least on, on the altar. And I do think for many women, that's a problem. There are so many other areas of our life where we would say lack of representation by a certain demographic group, whether it's gender or race or whatever, is problematic, you know, in the kinds of teachers we have, our political representation. And so leadership in the church is another area where I think that's important. Now, you're, you're right that women can be leaders in other ways beyond ordained ministry. Um, I was at a parish in Columbus this past weekend. It was catechetical Sunday, so they brought the religious educators up to give them a blessing. There were two men in a group of 50 people up there. Wow. So, of course, women are having a huge influence in a leadership capacity in many other ways in the church. But that same weekend, we got the news about the representatives at the upcoming synod of bishops, which, you know, it's a synod of bishops. So, of course, most of the people attending that synod will be men. But when we saw the full list of who will be at that synod, the number of women was extremely small. Um, and this is a synod on young people in the church. And so I think for young women, this is especially an issue because they've grown up where women are better represented in leadership. But the bishops are routinely tone deaf about those sorts of issues when they get raised. And I've, I've heard uh, more conservative Catholics who basically just brush off those kinds of concerns and say, well, then you just don't understand the way that the church functions and the proper structure of the church. I wonder where we think the tone deafness comes from. Why is it that it's so hard to point at a picture and say, this is a problem and have them not see the problem? You sort of follow what I'm saying? Man, I wish I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I'm a believer, and this comes from some of my own experiences with, with what was called for a while feminine spirituality, this this kind of, and, and some of feminist theology, too, that takes the importance of lived experience and kind of extrapolates from there. And so, you know, it's possible that some church leaders or bishops don't have experiences of being in that kind of oppressed group. You know, some do for virtue of race or other descriptors. I'm not sure why the tone deaf deafness. I do think that once they get into leadership, then they are surrounded by a lot of people who are like themselves. So it does require, if you can't have that personal experience, you certainly need to listen to or really make yourself open to the experiences of others. Well, and I think this goes back to, I mean, I like the language you use, and it might be harsh to some of our listeners, David, but when you talk about tone deafness, you know, I might just be outright deafness at times. And Heidi, I like what you just said about the fact that it requires deliberation. Like you have to be intentional about listening if it's, it's not your own experience. And so if I may throw out, I think it's as simple as saying that 
the structural injustice of patriarchy is what's at, at the core here. If you have the leaders of the church, those who exercise authority and participate in the authority of, of the bishops are exclusively male, then it's very easy to not be aware of the experiences of other people. Just like we can say, you know, analogously, if you're in a group of, or in a context where you're with all people of the same race, like all white people, you're not going to know intuitively, you're not going to have challenges to your own worldview necessarily, unless you seek that out and you have an openness to listening, like you were saying. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, people hear the word patriarchy and they envision a lot of different things. Uh, and, and so I can't anticipate what everyone hearing this is going to think. But, you know, one thing that often comes up is, well, does this mean, are you trying to make an argument right away for the ordination of women to the priesthood or to, to whatever? And I, I would say, even before we get there from a theological perspective, let's just say, nothing changes. Things remain as they have since the early 90s, where John Paul II says, we're not talking about this anymore. And we can talk about whether that's a good idea or not. I have some thoughts about that. But let's just keep that, you know, the status quo for a moment. There's still an opportunity for those who exercise leadership in the church to be deliberate about listening. And Heidi, I think you brought up a good example of the synod where the consultors, the observers, the people who are invited to come could be more diverse, including in terms of gender. It just strikes me as as irresponsible, kind of a pastoral malpractice if people are not open to, who are exercising authority, listening to the experience of the people. To put it in the words of maybe St. Saint, uh, Francis, I'm getting a little carried away here, Pope Francis, um, you know, that's what it's like to smell like the sheep, you know, to listen to them too. So I know that the word patriarchy can be off-putting to some people, just like the word feminist is off-putting to some people and... Um, some studies have shown that younger women were not claiming that label for, for many generations. But this idea of systemic in our culture of the church and also our broader society, systemic oppression of women, it may have been easy at one point to say, well, you know, we had the feminist movement. That's over. Women are equal. They can do anything. And I do think that for some younger women, because they've been brought up hearing that message that they can do anything, then it's a little bit of a rude awakening when you get out into the adult world and you have experiences where patriarchy, you know, affects your life. So I don't personally feel called to ordination. So it's not a huge personal issue for me, but it's very symbolic issue for me. But I have experienced being treated as less than because of my gender in myriad ways. Because I was brought up to believe in the full equality and humanity of all people, and I learned that not only from my parents and from our, you know, American culture that at least, at least preaches that, but I learned it from my church, and I believe that's God-given. It's been very difficult to have those experiences. You know, everything from workplace harassment and sexual assault to my experiences, I went to uh, a university that didn't accept women until fairly late in the game and had experiences where I was the only woman in some classes. And, you know, it wasn't until I really thought about these things systematically and, you know, studying feminism and feminist theology helped me to do that, where I realized like, hey, the reason I didn't feel so comfortable in that situation is that was 
that was sexism happening there. Well, I think you just raised an important point because you just said systematically and structurally. I think what oftentimes people get hung up on is the notion of intentionality, the notion that somehow a person has to intend to be a bigot, has to intend to be a chauvinist for chauvinism to happen. I think when we talk about patriarchy, and I just want to clarify this for listeners, we're not necessarily talking about intentional action, somebody being a boogeyman in a given situation. Instead, we're talking about an entire structure, as you said, a system, which just as a matter of course, makes decisions to exclude the feminine voice, women's experience at every level in a way that almost renders them invisible unless they're spoke, don't speak unless you're spoken to kind of thing. Is it, first of all, am I on base with that? Yeah. And I know like the example that I'm thinking of right now is some people's response to the the victim of Judge Kavanaugh and the, the her allegations of sexual assault by him when they were in high school. And some of that, like, well, boys will be boys. And what do you expect? High school kids and boys and they were drinking. That's systemic to think that an individual would not be responsible. Now, granted, somebody who's under 18 is treated differently even in our legal system than an adult. But this idea that because he's a male and we just sort of expect teenage boys to sometimes not be able to control themselves is patriarchy. And it it's not listening to the experience of women who are on the receiving end of that and how debilitating that can be for someone sometimes the rest of their lives. You know, I see this too, you know, there's the practical dimension that that you both have been talking about, but, you know, I can't help but have my theologian hat on sometimes. And I think about the ways in which magisterial teaching is deployed and then how it's presented and picking back up on this tone deafness. And that's a, that has a practical dimension, but there's also then the theoretical or theological aspect of this too. So we see, for instance, over at least the last couple decades, we don't have to go very far in, in our own modern time, you know, papal documents, for instance, that, that kind of dictate or describe, quote, women's experience. I think of the work of John Paul II, you know, and, and to some extent, you see this as well with Pope Francis's references. He uses some of the same language at times, a theology of woman, he'll say, or the, quote, genius of women. And what you get presented with is some male's perspective of a kind of idealizing, maybe, maybe, I don't know, a, some kind of articulation of what the reality of what it's like to be a woman is. And that seems deeply problematic. It seems really it has practical implications too. If I, if I can just give one other example, uh, you know, I think of the way that church teaching frequently talks about the effects of original sin. And this is something that I know a lot of feminist theologians have highlighted before. And the, the language that's often surrounding talk about original sin is deeply masculine and male in a, in, a in a typical or stereotypical way. So, original sin is oftentimes presented as pride or hubris or arrogance or selfishness. And yet, what a lot of feminist theologians have pointed out is like, that's not necessarily our experience of sin or of sinfulness, you know, both the temptation to exercise sinful acts, but also to be victims of sin, to, to experience the effects of sin. And so, yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts about that too, Heidi or, or, or David, about the, these theological implications that seem to come from the top down. On the one hand, there's the the grassroots experience of patriarchy, of misogyny, of, of inequality, but then it comes from the top as well. Yeah, so I think you're talking about that Valerie Saving article where she talks about women's experience of sin being more of like not 
putting themselves out there or sort of always being passive or something like that. I can say this, that when I first started studying feminist theology and I chose my graduate uh, program based specifically on the chance to study with Rosemary Radford Ruther, who's this prominent, you know, brilliant feminist theologian, very grounded in the Catholic tradition, but very challenging of patriarchy and sexism, that it actually made me more angry at the church when I started really learning, not just current statements, but the history of the church's oppression of women. And so initially, it was a really difficult thing to really get into the weeds of all that has happened and is happening to women. That said, I think there are so many feminist theologians and other women in the church who are trying to do a, a recapture of some of the parts of our tradition that can be really life-giving for women. And you know I wrote a book about Elizabeth Johnson, and she did a lot of work even around Mary and around other uh, things in the church, including feminine language and images for God. And I know for so many women that has been a really positive thing to be able to experiment with and help them in their spirituality, in how they relate to the church, but also how they relate to God. So I don't think it's a coincidence that you find a lot of Catholic feminist women who have daughters named Sophia, mm-hmm. including me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I just yesterday I gave a lecture here in Chicago about holiness and the apostolic exhortation. And the first third of it is all really indebted to Elizabeth Johnson and her work on becoming friends of God and prophets. You know, again, Sophia, she takes that from the, the, the Hebrew wisdom literature as an alternative way to think about how do we talk about our relationship to one another and understanding the communion of saints, but also how do we construct models of Christian living? Right. This becomes so important because if it's all men talking about how women should be, then the saints, you know, with a capital S that gets selected, fit a certain stereotype, fit a certain preconceived notion that does not at all reflect the diverse and and varied experiences of people in this world, especially all types of women from different social locations and contexts. This might be a good place for us to take a quick break, and then we'll return to this conversation. So you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to reflect on current events informed by our Catholic faith. And we're 
Very fortunate to be joined this episode by Heidi Schlumpf, the national correspondent for National Catholic Reporter. And we're talking about in our series this season around frustrations and tensions in the church, struggles that people have across the broad spectrum of the body of Christ. We're looking this week at various issues that, that affect women as members of the Catholic community. And so, David, you you had an interesting thought that you'd like us to think about here. Well, I'm wanting to bring in a perspective that I've read in Commonweal recently and in some other publications. And it's basically this, that if we look at the Vigano letter and if we look at the reporting that has happened in the wake of the Vigano letter, what we discover is that one of the things that was said about why wasn't McCarrick dealt with more publicly and more harshly, well, Vigano and others said, well, it just dealt with the irenic nature of Pope Benedict and his gentleness. But as Paul Moses in Commonweal pointed out just recently, there is ample evidence of Benedict dealing very publicly and very harshly with bishops who stepped out of line on the issue of women's ordination, on the issue of a greater role or visibility for women, or in, including the voice of women. And so we have an interesting contrast, if Paul Moses and others are correct, in the way that the church has dealt with the question of women's inclusion and the question of regular and systemic sexual abuse. And the, and the former, the women's inclusion has been dealt with very publicly and harshly and Systemic sexual abuse has been hushed and pushed under the table and has been has had the systemic support structure built into the hierarchy to shield it. That was one of the places where I found real kind of frustration and problem over the last couple of weeks is just realizing that there is this double standard about certain questions and certain things are taboo and certain things are not able to be spoken about or even named and I'm thinking about this both in the women's ordination question, but also in the sex abuse question. It's interesting, a sort of mirror image of what can't be named, being publicly told you can't talk about it versus no one talking about it. And I'm thinking about, you know, a conversation that I had with my wife over the weekend. And the idea that came out of that conversation is when you've got something huge like the sex abuse crisis, you need to find a scapegoat and that women became very convenient scapegoats very public scapegoats because they, and it's the old thing, right? That women are the location of, of certain types of lust and sin for men and all. For, for the, our listeners, yeah. David also used air quotes. Yeah. So I'm, he's I'm, not, he's not yeah, I'm, repeating I'm, that. I'm, I'm still churning with this, but I, I read that piece by Paul Moses about this contrast in the way that, that the church has dealt with these two issues. And it just really stirred a lot of things up for me. The way the church has approached the women's ordination issue and even discussion of it, I think really does send a strong message to women. Not only are we not going to ordain you and allow you into certain positions of leadership that require ordination, but we're not even going to allow discussion of it. Uh, you may or may not know that one of my claims to fame, I guess if you would call it, is that an article I wrote while I was at U.S. Catholic Magazine on the topic of women's ordination did come to the attention of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and required some discussion back and forth between the publishers of that magazine and the Vatican. And what was really curious to me about that article is that it was not engaging theologically with the question of women's ordination, but instead I profiled 
five or six women and just had them share their experiences of feeling called to ordination and not being able to pursue that within the Catholic Church. So again, returning to that idea of let's just listen to people's personal experiences. So for me and for the magazine to be in trouble with the Vatican for just even saying, let's listen to women's experiences because we're not even allowed to discuss the issue is pretty stark. And I think for women, especially Western women or American women, that just came off as so unjust that in many ways, I think the church has completely lost credibility with a whole generation of women on the issue of women and men, actually. <laughs> now, I can't, I'm not speaking for all women because there are more traditionalist Catholic women and young women who don't struggle with church teaching on ordination or on other issues. But for a lot of young women I know, they, they don't have any credibility on the issue at all. Well, and it strikes me too that those who may not personally struggle with the teaching are also maybe like yourself, not personally called or feel a call to orders. And so, I, th I think one of the things I've often thought about is somebody who has felt that calling, you know, who's been able by virtue of, of my gender, by virtue of, of a number of circumstances to pursue that calling in response to God, I tend to be very interested in hearing the experiences of others, including women, you know, and that doesn't, it is interesting, like you point out in, in U.S. Catholic, that that article, you're not proposing or calling out the church, like, you must change such and such. It's like, well, can we listen to what people are saying? And I think, you know, it's always, you know, it's kind of a cliche to say that the weakest argument is always the one from authority. And I don't mean authority in the theological sense in the church, but just the, it's the old parent because I said so. And when you cut off conversation or reflection, you cut off people's experiences. That's a very weak argument. And so it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people, regardless of what their personal positions are, you know, whether the church has it right or wrong about who should be admitted to orders and ministry, uh, would find that very disappointing. I also think it's not a little ironic, too, that one of the key elements of the theology of ministry and orders in the Catholic Church is that holy orders is not a democratic thing. It's not something people are elected to. It's not a personal thing that somebody decides to do, like one might decide to run for office. It's something that's recognized as a call from God and that it's it's confirmed, of course, by a religious community or by the people of God in a diocese represented by the bishop who is symbolically the point of communion in a given church. But nevertheless, it's not the bishop who calls somebody. It's not the people who call somebody. They support and affirm and recognize it. But the call comes from God. And so regardless of how one might feel about it, I can say, as somebody who is ordained, is a priest, I know what that call from God is like. This has been my experience. And so it's, it doesn't take much for me to, you know, I, I guess my frustration, just to, to piggyback on, on Heidi, your comments, my frustration is with my brother priests and, and bishops and others who maybe are forgetting their own experience of a call, you know, and find it so preposterous that somebody else might have that too. And maybe one of the reasons that I'm empathetic to women who are called to ordination and aren't able to follow that call, although at least one woman in that story pursued that call through the Episcopal Church rather than the Catholic Church, is that I've often felt unable to pursue things that I wanted to pursue because I was a woman. Or I've also felt, I feel, I continue to feel called by God to be a mother. And yet I had a difficulty becoming a mother 
because of infertility. So I knew what it was like to feel like, wow, God put me on this earth to do this thing and I'm not able to do it. It's not, uh, you know, as women, ordination advocates are sometimes painted as these strident women wanting power or something. And really my experience of interviewing them and, and those I know is that these are people who are suffering because they feel they're not doing what God put them on this earth to do. So this idea to not even listen to those stories or be empathetic to them comes off as discriminatory or even anti-Christian. And I think we see this in the issue with LGBTQ Catholics as well, where the leadership is not listening to the pain and the experiences of people. Now, to be fair, uh, women and LGBT people and all kinds of people experience discrimination in in the broader culture too. And what I would really like to see the church do is be a leader on this issue to be, we're not perfect, but we're working on our own sexism and patriarchy and trying to be prophetic in the world and say, just like we're trying to be prophetic on the life issue, let's be prophetic about the lives of women and not just when they're pre-born, but but throughout their lives. It reminds me of uh, you bringing together the LGBTQ community and the experience of women in the church and and more broadly in public too. It reminds me of both what David, you were saying earlier about the scapegoating that comes. And we see that so clearly in, in the politicizing of the sex abuse crisis in the letter by former Nuncio Vigano. The people that were named there were people that he targeted because they they're saying exactly what you're saying let's listen to gay and lesbian men and women let's listen to transgender people let's listen to the experience of those who have been silenced or marginalized including within this community of faith that we claim to be modeled after the community of Jesus Christ which welcomed first and foremost pride of place the people who were most ostracized by society and so you know i'm i'm reminded too uh, several years ago at a theology conference i heard a really fascinating paper delivered by an Anglican theologian named Mary Jane Rubinstein, who teaches at Wesleyan uh, University or Wesleyan College in Connecticut. And the title of her paper was addressing orders and misogyny and homophobia uh, and how they all kind of interrelate in the Anglican communion. You know, this was around the time that the Episcopal Church was being kind of like attacked by other other churches from around the world in the Anglican communion. And she had a very clever title. The title of her paper was called The Gay Problem is a Girl Problem. And saw the parallel structures of both scapegoating, but demonization, silencing, marginalization. Well, and I just think that when we talk about oppression of any group of people, it's always interconnected and and or related to other oppressions. So one of the most powerful classes I ever took while I was at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston. Well, many of them were very powerful from Rosemary Radford Ruth or two, but this one wasn't taught by her. And it was on black theology. And it looked at not just issues of gender and LGBT, but uh, it also looked at issues of race and class. And those are the two sometimes that don't get mentioned as often. And so, especially I had to learn that within the women's movement and the feminist movement, you know, white middle class and upper middle class women have had a lot more platform to talk about their experiences to the detriment of the experiences of 
women of color and lower class women of color or not. So I see all these things as interconnected. And I I love that you're going to be talking on all these different uh, topics while you're doing this series this year. But you can't sometimes just talk about one because they are connected. Well, the difficulty, I think, is, and I've, I've observed this in the various seminaries that I've been either a student at or have taught at, there is a, a tendency in religious communities to anoint certain people. So, for example, I went to a Presbyterian seminary. And if you went to Presbyterian College or Davidson College and then went to a Presbyterian seminary and you were white and male, there was almost like you had a holy glow around you and you were sort of like, oh, this this person definitely is going to be a pastor. I think that a similar sort of thing can happen in Catholic circles as well. One of the things that I like from earlier in the conversation is the comment that was made that that when a person has experienced oppression and then gets into a position of authority, they have an opportunity then to remember that oppression and to then make avenues and bridges for others who are similarly oppressed. And when that comment was made, I immediately thought of someone like Brian Massingale, who has advocated so well for both the African-American community, but also for other threatened communities that are touched by the church. And that kind of intersectionality is a lot of what we're talking about right now, that that willingness to advocate for others when you get to a position of authority because you remember your own experience and then you empathize based on that experience. When I was booking for my show, Things Not Seen, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a guest and uh, he Uh, As I said, I'd love to have you come on my show. He said, that's great. I'd love to come on your show, but I'm really interested in what you're doing to make sure that women of color are being represented on your show. He was using his position as someone that I wanted to get on the show as a way of advocating for others. That has really stuck with me. And I'm, I'm very, very powerfully moved by that. Yeah, that's it is striking because I think one of the things that and and I hope in our conversation on this episode, our listeners appreciate. So I just want to name explicitly that in no way do we expect Heidi and we had a conversation before we went on the air to represent all women. Right. That's basically replicating the same sort of problematic we see, you know, at various levels of of church uh, leadership. But furthermore, it's not the responsibility of Heidi or any woman, as it were, or collection of women to, quote, teach or tell men what to do. It begins, it's got to be exercising our agency to recognize the privilege of of male privilege, of the various levels of authority and power, how they're used and abused. And to, you know, in the situations where that can't be surrendered, or it's not easily seen to deploy it in such a way to the benefit of others to give voice to folks who have been systematically silenced or overlooked. Right. And but I would say that as a journalist, I am in a position of power, Certainly our newspaper is prominent, it's national, it's, it's got uh, influence and readership. And when I choose who I speak to for articles or the kinds of articles that I write, I do have that opportunity to try to raise up certain voices when I can, just in the same way as a podcast organizer would. You know, we all make an effort to try to include people of color in our stories, but it's not enough just to be like, well, I talked to five male white theologians, I need to get a woman of color in there. It's also just building those relationships, spending time in those communities so that you understand the issues that are important to them. You know, we always are in danger of seeing things through our own eyes. NCR does a good job, I think, of having a pretty diverse staff. So we often have people on our staff who can talk about things that they see as important in other communities. One group that I've had a fair amount of success, I think, uh, in the past year 
of reaching out to is some more traditionalist Catholic women, including some younger women. And it started because I was writing a few stories around the Me Too movement and was talking to women who were victims of sexual assault at some Catholic schools that are known for attracting more traditionalist Catholics. So Christendom College, we had another reporter who wrote about Franciscan University at Steubenville. And in talking with them and hearing their stories and probing to find out what their experiences were, I really found a point of connection with them, even though their experience of Catholicism might have been different than than my lefty progressive Catholicism <laughs> that I grew up with. And and I really became hopeful that uh, many of them were having something of a, of a mini feminist awakening, um, sadly, around the experience of sexual violence. But I had this hope that that perhaps women might be able to help address some of the polarization, at least in our church, if not in our broader society, because we had some shared experience as women, even if we disagreed on other things, that we might be able to find some coming together on that. So I'm kind of hopeful about that. Was it your experience in talking to some of those young women that it that experience of not being heard or the experience of not being responded to adequately at some of these uh, institutions or by their church, uh, the local church, did that affect their thinking about Catholicism, about their faith in any way? Yeah, it led them to question what they had previously believed without thinking through and to think about how some things that our church teaches theologically, how that might also be connected to the way they were treated. So just the idea that they were discounted or seen as somehow responsible because they were women and sexual, you know, and in some, many of them were quite young. So of course they maybe wouldn't have be thinking about that until they had a personal experience of sexual assault. And, you know, I just think that it's sort of sad that you would have to have that negative experience to, to be thinking about that. But I found hope in the, in the idea that you know, I remember saying, you know, a person who was complaining, like, and then the church, you know, they're this and they're so sexist. And I said, yeah, that sounds really similar to what a lot of feminist theologians I've studied have been saying for a long time. And she's like, feminist theologian, I don't know that I know uh, any feminist theologian who would be a feminist theologian. And it was really an opportunity to just say, yeah, there are a lot of women who've been writing about these issues and Maybe that if we imagine God more as mother and not just as father. And I was able to point that person in that direction a little bit. And so I find a little hope in that. You mentioned earlier, and and this, what you're sharing right now is getting me thinking about this again. We talked about how patriarchy has a certain, at times, controverted kind of-ness to it. Some people do, you know, they, they... assume that this is going to lead to a polarized conversation and people take sides and they're for and against or whatever it may be. And that the word feminism or identifying as a feminist has a similar sort of history and, and kind of connotations to it. But I'm wondering too, what your thoughts may be personally, you know, around the word feminist, because it does seem like women that are my age or younger, let's say 35 or younger, you know, like you rightly said earlier, it's almost like the effect we saw around uh, public conversations of race in the United States after two, two, 2008, where people are like, oh, we have a black president, racism's over, when that was absolutely 100% not the case. And so I think there are young women who have certain advantages that their mothers or grandmothers didn't have, or some opportunities, and they go, well, feminism is dead because we got what we needed. And that's just so not true. As a male, I'll just say that 
I'm not threatened by the term feminist. In fact, I'm very comfortable appropriating that for myself, but recognizing, and I've, I've changed my opinion about this in recent years. And I'm like, it's not my place to call myself a feminist. I, I recognize some women say only a woman can be a feminist and I can be an ally. I'm cool with that too. But I'm just wondering, especially in conversations with young women that seem to, they seem to avoid this term. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I was raised to be a feminist and my mother is a strong woman. And so I didn't have problems with that language. I'm a little bit older than some of the younger women we're talking about. (laughs) Not a boomer, but a very old Gen Xer. So I think some of the issues around the word feminist, especially in Catholic circles, is that it was became associated with the pro-choice movement. And so, you know, I was just talking about how I listened to your talk with Stephen Millies and his um, analysis of how Roe versus Wade has really affected the church and polarization in the church. And I think that issue of abortion and the legalization of abortion in the U.S. and the church's connection to that issue has really affected a lot of other issues around women in insofar as that's seen as a women's issue. What I have seen recently, and this is really kind of a post-Trump thing, is younger women being less afraid of that term. You know, my experiences of going to women, the women's marches in DC and one here in Chicago and seeing younger women who feel because we have in the White House a person who has then sexually assaulting women and has this, and in the extreme amount of vitriol against the female candidate for president, I think that really got a number of women to say, like, it certainly isn't over. <laughs> um, maybe just like Charlottesville helped reminded us all that it's not over around race. So I see women more likely to to grab that title. But the, the issue of abortion is always a tricky one when it gets it, it gets in there too. Well, Heidi, we want to thank you very much for joining us. Um, This has been a wonderful conversation. I think very insightful. I hope our listeners, too, have been thinking along with the three of us about some of these ideas, some of these concerns, some of these issues, because they touch everybody, not just women in the church, but men in the church as well. And and as always, David and I welcome your feedback, your, your comments. And Heidi, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions of which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. 
And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first two seasons. Thanks for listening.